All right, welcome Inappropriate Earl listeners. Today I am very, very excited to have a man I've never met before, but I feel like I know. Uh, as many of you know, I'm a big, big fan of the band Kiss. And when uh, I bought my very first Kiss album with my own money, and by that I mean $20 my dad gave me, it was the Lick It Up album. And there was a strange credit on the album that said Creative Consultant. And it mentioned this gentleman's name. It also had the same credit on the Animalize album, as well as Asylum. I'm proud to have him here. He is a legend in the music business. Please welcome the one, the only, Mr. Danny Goldberg. Hey, how are you? Good, Danny. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm sure a man of your talents being on an unknown comics podcast was not on your bucket list. Getting any attention from anybody was on my bucket list. So I appreciate it very much. But I have the three albums that uh, meant a lot to me. Oh, cool. That's so cool. Uh, you know, the funny thing about, you'll find this some years from now, someone who you don't know listening to your podcast, you know, that you do stuff and you never know if anyone notices or not. And, uh, it's cool when somebody does, you know, so um, uh, I'm happy to talk to you. Well, I find the uh, era that you worked with Kiss and and we'll get to the many other bands that you have worked with. And sure. yeah. um, but it's the most interesting era of the band for me, because I would say from 1979 to 83, they did something I don't think I've ever seen a band do, which they put out about four or five albums. And each album was different in style. Like uh, Dynasty was essentially a disco album. Um, and I'm assuming that's because of their label mates were the village people. Maybe they were influenced by Neil Bogart saying, hey, these guys are huge. This is the style that's in. And then uh, 1980 was Unmasked, which was essentially a Cars album, which I love. Um, and then The Elder, which was Kiss's version of Pink Floyd's The Wall. And then uh, 1982, uh, Creatures of the Night, which was probably influenced by the upcoming bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. And then we get to look it up. Uh, have you ever seen a band do that where they were so different from album to album? Um, it's unusual. It's more unusual for a rock band. There are solo artists that have certainly done that and tried different styles you know um you know you think of ray charles doing a country music album or uh you know uh aretha would do pop r&b funk gospel um al al albums at different times um it's it's more bands tend to be a little more consistent although i think um radiohead is pretty uh pretty known for kind of, they almost reinvent themselves on a regular basis musically. I think with Kiss, um, I had met Kiss originally. Uh, I first worked with them uh, earlier in their career as a publicist in 1976. They hired me to do publicity on the Rock and Roll Over album. And I had a PR company at the time and I kind of followed them from the beginning because their first manager, Bill O'Coin, was a friend of mine before he was a manager. And I remember him telling me about Kiss. And I, I think they always had um, 
a kind of conceptual idea about what a rock band was. They they they're not bad musically. They've written some really good songs and they certainly know how to perform rock and roll. But as Gene Simmons said to me once that he was more less interested in rock and roll, the music and more interested in rock and roll, the thing. And obviously the whole um, origin of Kiss wearing the makeup, he was very influenced by horror movies and comic books and and kind of had a it was kind of um, 60s rock 2.0 when Kiss came along was the earlier 70s. There had already been Cream and Led Zeppelin and the Stones and the Beatles. And so maybe it's 3.0 or 4.0. And I think that they noticed Alice Cooper wearing the makeup and, and had an idea to take that kind of theatricality to the next step. And the music always kind of fit into the larger idea of Kiss you know, which was which was um, which was defined so much by the makeup. And I think that that that, that they had a, a, an extremely meteoric rise. Uh, and then by the time we get to the period that you're talking about, their sales were declining. Those albums that you mentioned were declining in sales. And though there are certainly a lot of artists who make music and they don't keep track of whether it sells or not. They're, they're interdirected or it's based on the art and the business kind of takes care of itself. If they're talented enough, kiss always Gene and Paul, when I speak about kiss, I'm really speaking about Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley in my experiences with them. Uh, they're the guys that made all the business decisions. They were certainly the only two people I ever had meetings with or discussions with. And they, you know, and Gene and Paul always had a keen interest in the business part. Also, they certainly uh, you couldn't do what they do on stage without enjoying it, without having a sense of artistry for what it is to be a rock artist. But they didn't like seeing the sales declining. That was not something that, that they were going to be oblivious to. And, um, you know, that was sort of the moment at which. Uh, which I talked to them about taking the makeup off. I certainly was not the first person to talk to them about it. And I'm sure sooner or later they would have done it anyway, but that was the moment when they actually did it. And that sort of changed the paradigm for them to, now they were really just competing with other contemporary rock bands uh, head to head as musicians, as performers, without the so-called gimmick of the makeup. And um, particularly meant a lot to Paul Stanley, who I think really, uh, wanted to be recognized as a as a as a uh, first rate rock singer, uh, and it really accomplished that goal. You know, it reversed the sales. I think the Elder had sold a quarter of a million records or something, and Lick It Up was triple that, and then Animalize sort of doubled that again. So it reversed their trajectory commercially. It gave them a new lease on life, and it coincided with the emergence of MTV as sort of the prime connector between rock artists and their fans. So that, that, that those videos were a part of it. And those were videos of, of the guys, you know, without makeup. And that's what they did for, uh, you know, however many years until they put the makeup back on, which ironically, I also was working with them in a different capacity as president of Mercury when they put the makeup back on. But um I think they were experimenting to try to figure out what was going to work. Once the gimmick of the makeup uh, was no longer new and was no longer a novelty, uh, you know, now what do they do to connect with with a mass audience? And I think they just tried different musical styles. I doubt very much it was 
Neil Bogart telling them what to do or suggesting it. I think they just noticed that disco was really popular and experimented with seeing whether that could uh, fit into what their art was. And, and the answer was not particularly. They were better off as a hard rock band. Right. Now, I'm going to mention a name that uh, I know you said you dealt primarily with Gene and Paul, but I think he was a man instrumental in their, I guess you'd say, revitalization. And that's Benny Vincent, who, uh, you know, I think uh, I'm fascinated with that he got kicked out of the Benny Vincent invasion. I mean, you got to be a real a-hole if your name's in the band and you get kicked out. But he was um, <laughs> definitely a new style of guitar player. Uh, uh, you know, I guess you'd say he was more technically uh, proficient than Ace, who kind of went after a, a Jimmy Page type. I don't want to say sloppy, but a, an improvisational style. And, and Vinny was more along the lines of, you know, Van Halen. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, not not as creative as Eddie Van Halen, I don't think, but but very good. Well, first of all, let me just back up for a minute to make clear kind of what the nature of my role was with artists I work with, including Kiss, because that phrase creative consultant is kind of deceptive because it has the word creative in it. I certainly was a consultant, but I wasn't creative in the sense of giving them any advice about the music. I was really playing the role of a manager, but they had an accountant business manager at that time named Howard Marks, who'd been with them from the beginning and who made a lot of the deals and didn't particularly want someone else having the title of manager because it would interfere with his role. And I didn't care. They paid me. I was happy to work with Kiss. I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, um, uh, really um, admired their career and really liked those two guys a lot personally and communicated well with them, I thought. And so I accepted that particular title, but I had nothing to do with, uh, you know, who was going to play the guitar or how they played their guitar or anything like that. I don't play any instruments. I don't have that kind of talent or, or ability. I think that, you know, um, for 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 reasons that never were exactly spelled out, you know, they had a falling out with Ace. And uh, again, Gene and Paul, as far as I could tell, made all the decisions and uh, how people got paid very cycle to cycle, depending on what their arrangements were. But they they made the decisions. They They picked him as a as a guitarist. He fit that era because they were trying to compete again, more head to head musically and not rely so much on the theatricality. Um, but I really look at those albums, particularly in terms of the growth of Paul Stanley sure. as a front man, as a songwriter and as a singer. I think to me, that's the most memorable aspect of that iteration of what they did. What what Vinny's story was and why he was in this band and then the Vinny Vincent thing and getting kicked out or whatever happened. I don't know. I hardly ever talked to him the same way, the same way I'd hardly ever talked to Ace or Peter when I did publicity for the band earlier in their career, because Gene and Paul were the client sure. and they made those those decisions. So I'm the wrong person to talk about guitar style. I'm, I think both of those guitarists, though, are part of Kiss's story and legacy. You know, Ace had a emotionality to what he did that really fit the origin story of Kiss. And Vinny certainly very, very proficient, talented, more technically adept uh, musician. 
like you were saying, and fit what they were doing then. But, you know, honestly, Paul and Gene made the records. They made all the decisions and they picked the musicians. And if, if it hadn't been Vinny, this is no disrespect to him. They would have found someone else to play that role. Well, they actually did the next album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was Bruce. Was he was he the next guy? No, that was on Animalized, and it's one of my favorite guitar sounding albums of Kiss. Certainly, is yeah. uh, the uh, rest in peace, Mark St. John, who. Uh, oh God, was, I forgot that name. Yeah. No, I mean I feel bad for him because uh, most people have. They uh, he was literally only in Kiss for nine months, and then. Uh, Apparently, he developed it's a little spinal tap. Yeah, it, it evokes yeah. some of the comedy of spinal tap. But if you really think of them as sidemen who who wore a certain costume to appear on stage. And look, sidemen are some of the greatest musicians in, in musical history. That's not a pejorative. It's just the difference between being the decision maker of a band and, and being a musician who's who's implementing decisions that someone else made. And. Kiss is Gene, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. That's, sure. that's it. You know, and, and they've used a lot of other people, different record producers, different people in their business life, different musicians, uh, different uh, crew. Uh, but um, they've the, the, the consistent thing that makes Kiss Kiss is Gene and Paul. Uh, but uh, how hard do you think was it for them to, uh, you know, because when they were going with Vinny and Mark, you know, I would say the guitar styles of that era, like we said, Van Halen, Warren D. Martini from Rat, um, Jakey e. Lee uh, at that time with Ozzy. Were they trying to necessarily say, hey, we have to copy this band Rat uh, to stay relevant? Or was it just their own growing musical interest and expanded? I don't really know how to answer that. I was not in the room when they were writing songs or anything like that. But um, knowing them then, and 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 I haven't been in personal touch with either of those guys for a while. Uh, but you know, um, I think um, I think they listened to everything and were influenced by everything. You know, there are some artists that are very interdirected. Uh, you know, but there are artists that are very, very much influenced by everything they hear. You know, in the pop area, I think of Elton John as someone who listens to everything. Uh, I think there was a period when Bob Dylan was listening to everything and the idiom that he was performing in. And Gene and Paul, I think, listened to every hard rock band. They took note of who was successful and they borrowed anything that they thought was going to work, you know, um, I, I, I think the whole art form derives from blues and country music. And to, to, to say anyone invented any particular kind of rock music, except for Jimi Hendrix, who did invent something genuinely different sure. that influenced everyone that came after him. You know, I think they all kind of borrow from each other. I think what's considered stealing is more of a legal question than a aesthetic one. Um, but I'm sure they were influenced by what was going on because they were guys, Gene and Paul both listened to everything and paid an enormous amount of attention to what everyone was doing. And that's how I think they've been able to reinvent themselves so many times over the decades is they really keep in touch with the pulse of what that hard rock audience is listening to and watching and and, and responding to with some enthusiasm. And they they like to be successful. Again, I'm not saying they don't care about what they do as artists, but 
part of the art form of what they do is being a successful artist. Oh, sure. I mean, listen, one of my favorite grunge albums is Kiss's uh, album Carnival of Souls, which I think came out in 1994, right before the reunion. And uh, it, I always say it's a great Stone Temple Pilots album. <laughs> no, and Stone Temple Pilots, who I signed when I was at Atlantic Records, that was that was definitely uh, an important band in my life. Uh, when they when they uh, came out, uh, they were roundly accused of being derivative of Pearl Jam. Sure. So, you know, but yet now in retrospect, you look at Stone Temple Pilots and say, well, you know, that's uh, that's um, that's its own thing. Those records have a distinctive energy that are all their own. And by the way, you know, Gene and Paul, when the first time I ever met them in in 76, when I was going to do publicity for Rock and Roll Over, Paul, Paul, and after the meeting, Paul said, OK, now tell me about Jimmy and Robert, because he knew I had done publicity for Led Zeppelin. And to, to, to Paul in particular, I think Gene too, but definitely to Paul, that was the apex of creativity and rock credibility and aspiration was Zeppelin. But of course, Zeppelin was very influenced by what came before them too. I don't think without Cream, there would have been a Zeppelin. Without Hendrix, there wouldn't have been a Cream. You know, these are, that's the nature of the rock art form. But Kiss records sound like Kiss. You got to give that to them. They, they using these, uh, this grammar of rock and roll that doesn't have that many sounds and words and tones in it. They did create a distinctive identity uh, musically in addition to what they did visually. I, I, I've talked to very few people that are as articulate about describing what they've done musically as you are. But I think that what you're identifying is something that their fans recognized. Well, I mean, listen, my favorite album, and I think any classic Kiss fans will want to, shoot me when I say this was uh, the album they put out right after Asylum, uh, Crazy Nights, which really sounds like them. And I don't mean this in an insulting way. It sounds like them trying to sound like Bon Jovi because uh, they had hired Desmond Child and they brought in Ron Nevison to produce. Who was Oh, yeah. There's no question about about Desmond uh, had a real influence on what they were doing in terms of giving a little bit of kind of rock pop flavor to it uh he's an interesting talent in the history of rock and roll uh you know when you really look at his body of work as a writer and a producer oh sure i mean he uh wrote my favorite rat album uh detonator which you know most classic rat fans hate that album but i love his uh syrupy uh bubblegum pop uh style of writing uh which was certainly in in vogue in 1989 but with Nirvana. Um, I did. And I'm curious because as fans, I don't think we see the next big thing uh, coming until it's there. Um, you know, so 1989, 1990, you know, uh, I guess hair bands were still popular. You know, Cinderella was popular and uh, David Lee Roth was certainly a uh, winger, winger, warrant. Yes. And uh, there's a great story about Warren. And, and rest in peace, Janie Lane, the singer, where he walked into, I believe, Atlanta Records and he saw a gigantic mural of cherry pie, you know, their big anthem. And then uh, maybe a month later, he walked in and there was an Alice in Chains mural. And he was like, who are those guys? Is it has, has someone behind the scenes as an executive? How do you see the next big thing? Like, is there word amongst your Peers, hey, we got to send someone up to Seattle. There's something going on up there. 
Well, it depends on what time of my life you're talking about. You know, I, I got my first job in the music business when I was 18. Uh, you know, I dropped out of college. I was a clerk at Billboard. And now I'm, uh, you know, I, my 70th birthday is in the rearview mirror. So, you know, I'm heading towards 72. So I've been in a lot of different uh, iterations of my career, a lot of different uh, jobs, played a lot of different roles. And, you know, it's very different being in your 20s and being in your, you know, over 40, for sure. You know, uh, I felt up until a certain point in my 20s that, you know, my own taste was 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 the way to to identify what was happening because I was kind of part of the audience, even though a 25 year old is in a very different generation than a 15 year old. It's still close enough to feel it. Uh, and, uh, but generally speaking, um, I can't say that I'm someone who discovered people. Um, I think I was uh, certainly not after, you, you know, I think when I was very young and a critic, there were people I wrote about early on, like Loudon Wainwright and John Prine and, and others that weren't famous yet. So I was one of 20 or 30 journalists who kind of discovered somebody maybe, but once I was on the business side, you know, I was more interested. My talents were more towards giving career advice and helping to market and guide people who already had something going than just having the uh, mythological golden ears to to just uh, to, to, to know something ahead of everybody else. I, I was I was not the A&R scout type. I, I was the person that would be interested in what the A&R scouts had to say and then try to process that and make business decisions combined with some, I wanted to personally care about and hopefully love who I was working with, but how I narrowed it down, you know, frankly was based on analytics, not based on the, you know, some great talent uh, to uh, predict the future. Nirvana being a classic example. I mean, I had not even heard their first album, Bleach, which the rock press and college radio people and people in the punk rock world recognized as something that was very, very special. I was busy working with older artists and I was 40 years old when I, when I met, when I met Nirvana, you know, um, but, uh, you know, Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth was a, somebody I admired a lot and Sonic Youth was a client that I trusted his judgment and he was the one who told me how great Nirvana was, which is the only reason I really agreed to meet with them because I was kind of a, had a kind of shallow philosophy of a manager of like, I just don't like brand new artists because it's so hard to make any money with them for the first year or two. And I always was looking for people that had more of a following. And, and it was Thurston who said, you've got to make an exception in this case. They're that great. So he had the vision. I, I was just smart enough to listen to him. Um, it did you have to have some hard conversations with your clients, uh, your more established clients around that time when, you know, they clearly had a, that their energy was very, uh, I would say appetite for destruction, you know, just a, a young, hungry, uh, aggressive style of music that like at that time you had, like I said, David Lee Roth running around in assless chaps on a surfboard uh, with Steve Vai playing the heart guitar it certainly wasn't that image. Did you have to tell some of your older artists, hey, guys, it's time to switch musical styles or we can't work with each other? Again, everybody in my line of work or where they call themselves managers or some are record producers, some are record executives or music publishers. 
booking agents, kind of the people who work with artists, people bring a different skill set. Uh, you know, I never uh, have looked at myself as someone who who had much useful advice to give people about their music. I I, I try to be involved with artists that were kind of auteurs who had their own vision of who they were as artists. And my role was to try to guide them in terms of the business side and the marketing side. And, you know, in a few cases, some personal advice because those relationships developed uh, in, a, in a closer uh, way. At the time I had uh, Nirvana, the other clients I was working with were in a completely different idiom. Uh, we were managing Bonnie Raitt, uh, the Allman Brothers Band, uh, Ricky Lee Jones. Uh, none of them needed to worry about what Nirvana was doing. They needed to, to uh, compete, if, if that's the way you're thinking of it you know, within the creative lane and to the audience that they they were, you know, involved with. I think in general, you know, trying to copy uh, at one point, um, you, you know, I wrote a book about Kurt Cobain and uh, that was published uh, uh, in 2019, you know, a few years ago. Um, and um, in part of researching that, I went back and read almost every interview. He, I had my own memories, of course, but I also wanted to get the fullest possible picture of what he was saying about himself. And I read dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews and everything on YouTube that you could find and everything to just fill in the blanks and to remind me of things. And at one point, right after um, Nirvana became incredibly big, you know, they th that was the era when MTV was still the dominant thing. And he, he was interviewed by I, I I don't know. Maybe it was uh, it wasn't MTV though. It was it was either the Canadian equivalent or um, a European TV interview. And they said, "Do you think other bands are going to copy what you do or be influenced?" And he said, "Well, if 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 they if they're going to be influenced by anything we do, I hope the influence is for them to be more sincere." Right. And and that's that that's really who he was, who they were. Chris and Dave also. And um, you can learn a lot from listening to someone else. You can recognize that an audience is responding to a certain sound and a certain kind of record and a certain look. But I think people who just blatantly tried to copy Nirvana didn't fare very well. I think uh, there are things that has to come from the inside out. Well, it's funny when I had uh, Stephen Piercy from Rat on my podcast, uh, he was much like you. I, I asked him thinking he'd never say yes. And, you know, a couple of days later, he's on my couch. So I was, thank you for saying yes to this. Um, uh, and it's fun to talk to you. You're you're interested in what I've done and you're very smart about it. So the pleasure is mine. I appreciate it. Well, it's probably why my comedy career hasn't been as big as uh, it should be, because I can break down Kiss's Crazy Nights album, but not the. Uh, write a competent joke about the, the world's problems today. Uh, but, you know, with Kurt Cobain, he just seemed so serious and so smart for that age, you know, like, uh, and he seemed like he was almost, uh, like he didn't want the fame that came with his genius. Like, and I, I've seen Gene Simmons reference him and, and some of the other Seattle bands that seemed almost depressed. He's like, Hey, if you're sad and you don't want your album profits, you can just send them to me. Um, well, you know, uh, that's a typical gene thing to say, <laughs> you know, that's not at all 
none of that has anything to do with Kurt. First of all, he did have his demons. He had a bad drug problem. He had a very bad childhood. He was prone to depression. Uh, certainly not the only brilliant artist who's had that issue. Um, but he also had a great sense of humor. And, um, you know, when I, you know, had the, again, calling people 25 years after he died or 23 years after and the book came out 25 years after who knew him. I mean, so many times we would talk about the, the funny stuff that Kurt did and the warmth that he had. And, you know, uh, he was not depressed all the time. I can tell you that number one, number two, uh, Kurt never said he didn't, uh, want to make money. Kurt cared about making money. He grew up very poor, definitely grew up more poor than Gene grew up and didn't have the ability to make a living as a school teacher the way Gene could until he was able to have a rock career. Um, you know, Kurt, Kurt wanted to make money. Kurt wanted to be financially secure. He just, there were just things that he wouldn't do for money. There were, there were, there were, there were things that he, 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 his, his art came first and he felt that he ought to be able to do what he wanted to do with an artist as an artist and still get paid for it. And he was absolutely right. There was no problem, you know, uh, monetizing Kurt's uh, inner directed personal talent. And Kurt was definitely paid attention to money uh, because he didn't want to be broke. Right. So, you know, uh, the, the fact that he at the same time recognized the shallowness of materialism to the exclusion of all other values doesn't mean that he didn't care anything about making a living and being financially secure. It's one thing to, to not care about money at all. And it's another thing to say, yeah, I care about it, but I care about other things also. Sure. And the one thing I, you know, I never saw with grunge bands, you, you know, certainly with rap, uh, you know, you you have the East Coast, West Coast feuds with, you know, Biggie and Tupac and, and other artists, uh, you know, certainly in the glam rock era. I, I think, uh, you know, you had certain bands that didn't like each other, like I think Kiss and White Snake weren't exactly the best of friends and, and Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and then Guns N' Roses, uh, I think, and Nirvana clashed at times. Uh you didn't really see that with grunge bands. You almost got the feel, and I'm sure maybe I'm wrong. I probably am that they almost rooted for each other because they came from the same. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think there was certainly. I think the Seattle bands had a sense of uh, rooting for each other personally. You know, I think there were some bickering in the press between Kurt and members of Pearl Jam. And uh, I don't, you know, I love Kurt Cobain. Anyone who reads what I've written about him or knows me knows I just idolized him as a genius. I loved him as a person and I appreciate how how he was with me personally. But he wasn't perfect. And uh, I thought he was a little petty when he was belittling Pearl Jam. I think there was some jealousy there when Pearl Jam became as successful as Nirvana. Sure. Uh, and, and by some accounts on certain records more. Uh, but in but even then he liked them personally, you know, and uh, I think the Seattle bands, because they all kind of came from the same roots uh, geographically, played the same clubs, knew a lot of the same people, often had dated the, some of the same people. Uh, I think there was a sense of camaraderie that was very appealing. And I think to this day, some of those people kind of root for each other. I think in that respect, and this is a weird comparison musically, 
it reminds me of sort of the Laurel Canyon period in LA when people like Jackson Brown and Carol King and Crosby, Stills and Nash and the Mamas and the Papas and, you know, they, they all, uh, you know, kind of Joni Mitchell and so on, even though they were different from each other musically, they all would often play on each other's records. They rooted for each other. They'd show up at each other's shows. So, so I think the Seattle scene in particular had some of that. I think, and I think that the that the American punk culture writ large in the you, you know in the 1980s up until uh, Nevermind, which I think man I, I I'm so embarrassed to ask this it's it's 91 September of 91 is when Nevermind comes out right so uh, up until then you know the 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 this the, the, the late 80s and the beginning of the 90s until Nevermind. The American punk rock of that generation, which is different from the 70s punk rock of the Ramones and Patti Smith or the British 70s with the Sex Pistols and the Clash, the 80s version that included, you know, Black Flag and Fugazi, uh, you know, coming out of D.C. and, um, you know, a number of other uh, bands chronicled in the fanzines of the time. They were all part of a very intense but small subculture. And these were people that we often had to sleep on the floors of fans if they were on tour because they couldn't afford hotel rooms and so forth. And so there was some uh, it's not that everybody liked each other, but I think there was a sense of shared mission that they were the alternative. None of them got played on commercial radio. None of them were covered by Rolling Stone. None of them were on MTV um, and none of them were making much money uh, and dealing with a lot of the same indie labels. Uh, fanzines and college radio stations, uh, same kind of European fans, you know. Uh, so I think that culture was around for like 10 years before before uh, Nevermind happens and, and, and there's a way for some of these artists to really make a living. So, so I think there was a cultural uh, fraternity, uh, not that they were all best friends or even they all liked each other, but you, you, you know, I, I, I think there was some of that. I, I don't, um, you know, the phenomenon in the hip hop world of East Coast, West Coast, that's that's, I think, unique. I don't know of another example of something that intense. Right. I have to say the West Coast looked pretty good at the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> but I'm a kind of hand it to Dr. Dre. It turns out he uh, knew what he was doing. No, he's uh He's brilliant, like on many levels. Uh, you say? I mean, you know, what a people thought it was a gimmick, some gimmick, you know, that's like calling the Beatles a gimmick, you know. Uh, do you think also with the grunge bands, they had a common enemy with, uh, they seem so opposite of, you know, I, I look at like 87 to 89, the, the, the glam metal bands were really amping it up in terms of the imagery and the, the, the outfits and the hair and, and it almost seemed like all those grunge bands were like, Hey, let's band together against this thing. Cause uh, this ain't us, you know? Uh, yeah. I think, I think there was certainly a, a, you know, look, every generation wants to differentiate from the previous generation and in music to me, a generation is four years. It's the length of high school, you know? Um, you know, so people always want one generation has short hair. The next one wants long hair. One is wearing jeans. The next is glam, you know, because people want to differentiate and show we're new, we're not the copies, we're, you know, we're young. But I think there was another dimension in the part of the grunge world that Kurt was part of, certainly, which was a real um, influence of feminism. 
that there was a real uh, reaction against uh, the, the sort of uh, macho definition of masculinity and a real, a real conscious uh, idea to, 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 to um, sing about and portray women differently than, than, than we're in, in the, in the, uh, in, in some of the, um, you know, Motley Crue type uh, videos, you know, and, um, and uh, that was real, you know, that was certainly real when it came to Kurt. I mean, and uh, he was very influenced when he lived in Olympia uh, before he moved to Seattle, you know, was there was this evergreen uh, state college there. And out of that came Slater Kinney and, uh, other, other, uh, you know, the riot girl culture and, uh, you, you know, he, um, uh, he, he was uh, definitely, um, affected and influenced by that. Plus that's the kind of person he was. He grew up in a logging town with a bunch of macho homophobes, as he would put it, and definitely did not identify with them. He identified with the people they were bullying, you know? And, uh, so, you know, um, and I, I think Eddie Vedder is cut, is cut from that cloth too. Uh, I think um, I, I, I think there was a, a, a sort of a almost a moralistic strain in that part of the punk uh, movement. Not not everybody in, in in the punk world. Punk world had fifty different versions of it. But but I think Nirvana certainly um, uh, internalized that sort of feminist influence on on. Uh, on, on punk and um, and it, you could feel it in their uh, music and um, and uh, you could uh, you could read it in the interviews and see it in the videos, you know. Oh, sure. I mean, well, it goes back to uh, I, I guess I didn't uh, finish my point on Stephen Piercy when I said to him, are you mad at bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Grunge? And he's like, for what? I'm like, well, you know, they, they kind of killed your genre of music. And he said to me. Real matter of factly, they didn't kill us. We killed ourselves. You know, I knew there was a problem when Rat had a copycat, a copycat brand of Rat, and then that band had a copycat brand. So when the copycats are getting copycats, that's when I knew it was over for us, or not over, but you know the yeah, you know. And I think different people have different talents, and some talents go on for decades, and some talents are just the product of a moment in time. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, for example, had a talent that I think if he were still alive, he'd still be making interesting music. He certainly wasn't a product of grunge. You know, he came out of the Hollywood glam, same place, you know, that a lot of these bands came from that didn't have long careers, but he was more talented. Right. You know, I'm, you know, it's like, uh, it's just some, some people, uh, you know, had one pop hitch, you know, or a few hits, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers or Dave Clark Five or other bands from England in the mid 60s. And then there's, you know, the Beatles, the Stones and the Who and the Kinks. They all had songwriters that turned out to be uh, not dependent on being uh, just a product of the latest fashion trend, but that could transcend many trends because they were just, I would say, more talented, certainly as songwriters, but certainly differently talented. Sure. Well, I think it's funny. I think, I think one of the most interesting people, you know, to think about, and I don't know Axl Rose at all, but I'm really impressed with his, he's kind of reinvented himself as an elder with some real dignity, uh, without bitterness. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, I wouldn't have frankly predicted that, 
But, you know, I think that's that's he's obviously got more going on inside than some of the other people that uh, have not uh, reinvented themselves. Well, it's funny you say that. I just saw uh, well, I saw Guns N' Roses play. And, and for guys their age, I realize they have a few younger guys in the band. And when I say younger guys, I mean, they're 50. Uh, but they put on a great show still. Like in, in I'm not surprised. I didn't see it, but uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing one of those shows. I'm not surprised. They, 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 they were better than a lot of their contemporaries, it turns out. And uh, I was very happy when I read also just this is kind of a not the most deepest comment on rock and roll, but I got a kick out of the fact that Axl Rose was kind of politically, you know, uh, anti-Trump, which, uh, you know, back in the day, him and Kurt, you know, saw each other as being opposite sides of some cultural argument. And I just have a feeling if Kurt were alive, they, 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 I don't know if they'd be friends now, but I think they'd, they'd respect each other a lot now. And for, 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 for sure. But of course, we don't want to go there because my my I love Gene Simmons. I really I, again, it's been a while since I've seen him, but I really consider him a friend for a long time, not just the times I work with him. And I, I just I just really like him a lot and 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 had very good experiences with him, but not crazy about his politics over the last 10 years. Uh, Paul, however, is different. You know, it's funny, Paul and Gene, who are close friends. I mean, you see what Paul tweeted about Gene on his birthday and this kind of a thing. But 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 Paul's like a bleeding heart, the Democrat like me. Uh, Gene seems to have gotten into this uh, Trump thing. <laughs> Well, he is kind of like the Trump of musicians. Like, I'll give him this just as a fan. You know, I've met him a few times at comedy shows. And uh, he just was like, Earl, I like money. And I like um, something that rhymes with wussy. Uh, and I make no apologies for it. And I, I appreciate his honesty in that regard. Like, No, that's his brand. That's his thing. He's done well with it. I think the dirty little secret of Gene Simmons is he's also a pretty nice guy, pretty yeah. good to his friends. You know, there are people that claim to be good people that are kind of assholes in their personal relationships. Generally speaking, my experiences with Gene and observation with him, he's actually was a nice guy, but didn't want anyone to know it. Oh, no, I mean, I did a comedy show once uh, for him and he introduced me to his family, his uh, beautiful wife, uh, Shannon Shannon. and yeah. uh, and then his daughter uh, who was like maybe 21 or very young and and she was so uh doting of her father and then of course there's Nick who looks like a younger version of his dad and oh I know you could tell Gene was so proud of his kids and it was like wow this is not the Gene and the right. had on right. fire video um, correct correct exactly right exactly right yeah so uh, if you want to read uh, Mr. Goldberg's book on, he's got several, it's a serving the servant, remembering Kurt Cobain. And it's a great book. Uh, I read your uh, previous book, bumping into geniuses, which I got my uh, dentist out of uh, Dr. Stanley golden. Uh, so I owe you a, uh, <laughs> I know thanks, but he's retired now. He was a great dentist, but um I guess you mentioned to me in an email exchange that he was very expensive. It was uh, worth it. But I just, 
knew I was in uh, trouble when my file was right next to Ryan Seacrest. I was like, yeah. oh, I'm glad I'm starting to make money in comedy because I think, you know, you probably know this and I'm sure I mentioned it in the book, but Stan Golden is Bob. I think Stan's still alive. I haven't, it's been a few years since he retired. I haven't heard from him, but Stan Golden is Bob Dylan's cousin. Okay. And they were very close growing up. And I don't know if you remember in the room, there was a sheet lyrics of blowing in the wind with, you yes. know, to Stan, the greatest dentist, Bob, you know, and they like saw Buddy Holly together when they were teenagers and stuff. And Stan was such a music freak, you know, uh, he always was, uh, you know, he was particularly there for Warren Zevon, who's another artist I got to work with. You know, I had a label that put out his last few albums and Stan uh, was great to Warren when Warren got sick. You know, but Warren died an untimely death in his late 50s from a kind of cancer. And and the only doctor he trusted was Stan. Stan like went to him to other doctor's appointments, literally to translate and to make him feel comfortable. So that's another reason I particularly love Stan, besides the fact that he put caps on my teeth that still seem to be there, you know, uh, some years later. Well, I know we're approaching the end of your time and it, it's hard to wrap up an interview with you because from Led Zeppelin, to Belinda Carlisle, to Kurt Cobain, I, I mean, you, you really are, it's an often overused word, but you really are a legend in, in the music business. And I don't mean to embarrass you with, with all the people you've helped. You also got uh, Adrian Smed a platinum record for his uh, song in the Bachelor Party soundtrack. Um, do you have, and I realize when we spoke in email, you're like, Earl, you're going to be asking me questions from 40 years ago. Uh, can you? Well, dude, the Bachelor Party soundtrack, let me just say this. That was, uh, I was the music supervisor of that, sound, of that movie, and I got, I guess my credit was executive producer, and I vaguely remember Adrian Smed. But I definitely don't remember that album going platinum. I remember it being a pretty unsuccessful record. We didn't have a hit on it. We so much wanted the Go-Go's and couldn't get them. And I think we did it with the IRS records and they had some wannabe punk artists. So I think artistically, I, I think it's a pretty good record, but it definitely didn't go platinum or gold. I, I want to, I'm trying to, uh, Angel and the uh, reruns was the Go-Go, uh, I guess you'd say ripoff band. Uh, <laughs> But uh, man, I, I, you got me. This was no, no, too, too long ago. Uh, you know, we're talking, uh, what, early 80s, I guess. Anyway, no, I, go, you were, you were going to ask a question. My last question, and I thank you again for doing this. Uh, buy any of Danny Goldberg's books on Amazon. And uh, he, he's really a, a fantastic author as well. And uh, my favorite television show, Mr. Goldberg, is a little show that ran from 1983 to 1989, uh, starring the great Philip Michael Thomas and, of course, oh, the inimitable Don Johnson as Detective Sonny Crockett. Uh, I was recently watching uh, every I decided to. It's been a couple of years since I've seen the show. I said, I'm going to watch every season, every episode from one to season five. How did it hold up? You know, I I watched every episode when it came out. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I helped put the music together for the pilot and executive produced the so-called Miami Vice album. And then I later, quote unquote, managed Don's music career for a couple of years. 
But separate and apart from that, I was a fan. I thought the show was great. I mean, Michael Mann, who became a very important feature director in movies, was the executive producer of Miami Vice and had an incredible eye both for talent and for visuals. I'm curious, though, was it was it passe now or did it feel like good entertainment? Well, I mean, I'm a super fan of Michael Mann. I, I love this first. I don't know if it was the very first movie, but the 1980 movie he did with James Kong called Thief. Thief, incredible. Yeah. Which, uh, a lot of uh, actors in that movie later ended up being in Miami Vice, uh, including the real life jewel thief, John Santucci, who was, they actually used his jewel thief tools in the movie. Uh, so uh, in terms of how it held up, I thought the first the, season one is one of the greatest seasons of any TV show because of the music. It was perfectly done. Uh, Season two, good. Of course, Gene Simmons was in uh, season two as a pimp on a yacht. Um, and then I thought, um, I think Michael Mann, midway through season three, left to do Crime Story, which was a great show. That Oh, my God. Crime Story was so good. Just... Yeah. Um, I and, think then, I and then the quality went downhill after Michael uh, left. That, that could be. I, I don't remember. Well, I think what hurt the show, not to turn this into a Miami Vice podcast, but the, uh, you know, there's Crockett and Tubbs, and then you had the comic relief duo of uh, Switek and Zito. And uh, midway through season three, Zito, the actor Larry Deal, said, I want to go do theater. Like, he left the show. I've always admired this. You don't see it in bands in as much as you do with actors. He left Miami Vice at the height of its... Uh, genius and I think the show went down because even though he was a I guess you'd call him a, a, the keyboard player of Miami Vice yeah, he was yeah. a, an integral part and you know it was, or, yeah. Yeah, it was hit or miss after that but do you have any uh, specific memories uh, wrapping up this fantastic episode of uh, working with Michael Mann or Jan Hammer uh, well um First of all, it's cool for like no one ever asked me about this, Miami Vice. That's so what I specialize. I, 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 I'm asked a lot about Led Zeppelin, a lot about Nirvana, and 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 a, and and a, and a decent amount about Stevie Nicks and about Kiss. Those are the four artists that I'd say 95 percent of when I do things like this, people ask about. And you are, as far as I can recall, the first person to ever ask me about Miami Vice, and it just makes me smile because it was. Uh, such an interesting thing to, you know, I, I didn't have a lot else going on in my career then. And uh, I, I went down many times to the set, especially when I was working with Don and, you know, Don Johnson is just an extremely interesting personality. Every bit as large and larger than life as Gene Simmons or Mick Jagger. You know, he's a, he's a larger than life person in real life. And he's also reinvented himself I mean, incredible. I mean, he's had so many successful chapters to his career. I mean, including, you know, Quentin Tarantino movies and everything like that. Uh, you know, I don't know what to say. And Michael Mann, separately from that, you know, has had an extraordinary career. I, I, I just I'm, I'm a little tongue tied, though. You know, I polish off these anecdotes for when I've written about things and then I can find them. So, um, you know, I would just say that. Um, for me, I'd never really been on the set of a movie or, you know, for more than five minutes before and to really be able to hang out. I, I just thought Michael Mann was very much the visionary behind it. 
Uh, Jan Hammer, I had already known. He had been a client of mine. Uh, he had been the keyboard player of the Mahavishnu Orchestra, went off as a solo artist. When I had the management, my earlier management company, he was a client. I co-managed him with a guy named Elliot Sears, who I think to this day, like 40 years later, still manages Jan Hammer. And I was just thought Jan Hammer was so interesting. He was a Czechoslovakian originally, moved here, just seemed he was so talented and brilliant. And Michael Mann had used the Tangerine Dream on Thief. And I had met him briefly. I was a consultant to 20th Century Fox or something. And he called me. And he says, look, I'm thinking of using Tangerine Dream on this new show. And I said, I've got somebody better. Tangerine Dream, they're just going to imitate themselves. I've got a guy who plays the synthesizer and has that energy, that kind of vibe. Because that was kind of cutting edge then, electronic music. There wasn't as much of it. I said, but he writes melodies too. And I introduced him to Jan. And it's by far the most successful thing Jan ever did commercially is the theme from Miami Vice, which became a number one hit single. And um, I was just so... And then Michael Mann called me um, six months later, you know, after Miami Vice was on the cover of magazines and was kind of the hot new TV show. And he said, um, you know, you really helped me by suggesting Jan Hammers or anything I could do for you, which in my experience in quote unquote show business, I'm not saying that's the only time anyone ever did anything like that, but it's one of the very few times. And me, being opportunistic immediately said, let's do a soundtrack album. And he, he split the royalty on it. And that was the first uh, six figure check I ever got was the, the royalty check I got from because the, the Miami Vice soundtrack album sold like three, three million albums. The first, you know, six months it was out because the show was that big. So I would just say that about Michael Mann. He's a, he's a prickly guy. He's brilliant, a little too brilliant sometimes. But man, he 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 was a stand-up guy with me, and um, you know, Jan Hammer. I've lost track of. I'd love to see him, but he's a you know uh, extraordinarily gifted uh, musician and writer of melodies. Not the most commercial artist I've ever worked with, but one of the most talented. What, but I, I'm a little bummed out. I've got to really uh, try to think of some Miami Vice. Uh, uh things when i was on the set though i was always in don's orbit he he took up a lot of oxygen and um you know he's a character man i swear to god he's he's really someone so, someone will do a don johnson book it won't be me i doubt it unless he you know but man it'll be interesting he's had some life and he's still living it you know oh i mean that's uh you know i'm a fan of the underdog you know i think that's why i've always liked rats so much. And I promise there's a parallel to this, you know, like, like they were signed to Atlantic records and it was their last showcase. Everyone had seen them and, and they finally broke through with the, I think it was the assistant head of Atlantic records. And then with Miami vice, uh, Don Johnson was literally like the sixth or seventh. Choice. Oh yeah. He was dead. He was dead in Hollywood. Absolutely. He was sharing a house. My friend, one of my best friends to this day, who, if you haven't had him, I don't know, he's busy all the time. Is Michael DeBar. Oh, my God. Does the morning show now on Sirius. And Michael, um, you know, I'm godfather of Michael and Pamela's son. And Michael is still a very, very good friend of mine. Bumping into geniuses, I dedicate to Michael, you know, uh, and, and my old friend David Silver. And um, 
him and Pamela and and uh, Patty Darbinville and Don were like sharing this uh, two bedroom house in the valley because they, they couldn't afford their own place. When Don got the call that he had gotten the part, you know, it was uh, a great Cinderella story, no pun intended. Anyway, man, I'm at the end. I got to catch a train. So uh, that's my good excuse for bringing this to an end. But uh, Earl, I, I really thank you for reaching out to me. This has been one of the most fun of these I've done. Well, Danny, I don't want you to be late. Uh, follow Danny on Twitter, Danny Goldberg 67. Buy his books. He is a musical legend. And I hope to maybe do a round two with you at your leisure, Mr. Goldberg. All right. All right. Let's thank you so much, Mr. Goldberg. Bye-bye. Thanks, Earl. Thank you very much.